0: Christ would be glorified and we would be humbled. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I I invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to chapter 5 of the book of Matthew. And we're going through the Beatitudes in Matthew. We're actually going through the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount begins with the Beatitudes. And so I want you to go there in your copy of God's Word and we'll begin a third Beatitude. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek. And as you turn there, you'll be reminded these are not just spices to add to the recipe of life. Jesus is uh, drilling down deep into our hearts and our souls, boring down into the very core of who we are, and he's declaring what it truly means to be his. To be a person who is in a right relationship with God. These are the marks of the person who is right with God. This is the mark of someone who actually has a relationship with God. These are the marks on the soul of salvation. And he starts by saying in verse 3 of chapter 5 Blessed are the poor in spirit. This is the self evaluation that you give yourself. If you're truly born again, if you're in the right relationship with God, it all starts with you saying, I have nothing. I have deserved nothing, I have earned nothing, I am nothing, I have nothing to offer God, and I evaluate myself as being totally, abjectly, utterly poor. And secondly, he goes on to this next one, and he says, Blessed are those who mourn which is the heart response to someone who knows that they're poor in spirit. He, Jesus is not just saying, here's some things you could do to live a happy life. He's saying, here's what defines the people of God. They're poor in spirit, and out of that humility, that deep humility, they see that they have nothing to offer God. They see how they've offended God in their sin, and they see the brokenness of the world, their own personal brokenness, and it says they mourn. So blessed are those who mourn. And then he gets to what we're going to talk about this morning. Blessed are the meek. So you got poor in spirit, you got mourning, and you got meek as the first three qualifications of a Christian. The first three characteristics of a Christian. I don't know about you. Let's say you're in a company, you're looking for a new leader to be your CEO. And you're putting out your feelers to see who might be your next strong leader to take the organization to the next level. How many of you would be looking for someone who doesn't think very highly of himself, who cries a lot, (laughs) and who, you know, quite frankly, is meek? And, you know, if the world defines meek for us, we might think that that just means kind of weak. That's our definition of meek. I was talking to Ashley. I said, what's the first thing you think of when you think of what it means to be meek? And she said, I don't know. It's kind of like you're weak. You like, you, you, you're the one who always defers. You're the one who never asserts himself. And the world has this idea. I looked it up in Merriam-Webster's dictionary that meekness was defined as this, lacking in courage or confidence. Someone who doesn't have enough courage or confidence. And, and here Jesus is saying, blessed are the meek. He's saying, let this shock you a little bit. The people who are going to inherit heaven, the people who are going to be right with God, who indeed are right with God, are people who are meek. Now I want to tell you that this makes complete sense from what Jesus is going, but it wouldn't have made sense to the people who were listening to it, or at least it would have completely shocked them. You want to know if you're right with God? Are you poor in spirit? Do you mourn? Are you meek? Jesus, with each beatitude, is raising the stakes. Here's why: I can say about myself that I'm a poor, miserable wretch. I can can say that about myself. I just don't like it when people agree with me, right? I'm willing to say I'm a miserable sinner, Lord. I'm needy. I need help. And I'll even you maybe have you been in this situation? You're in a prayer group, and you're praying, and you're saying, "Lord, I am needy. I need help." Lord, help this miserable sinner. You go on, you pray, and then it's the next person's. And he goes, yeah, Eric, he's needy. He's a miserable sinner. He needs help. And you go, hey, wait a second. <laughs> you like, pull out of your prayer for a second. Well, I'm allowed to pray that, but, you not, but not you. Because we're happy to say that before God, we're low. But it's much more difficult to say before people that we'll be low. It's much more difficult to be what Jesus would describe is meek lowly see it's not just how we view ourselves that's part of it but to be meek is actually to see yourself as the least important in the room Meekness is humility gone horizontal. How do I relate to the people around me, the situation around me, the things that God has put into my life? Meekness has to do with me seeing who I am before God, but then translating that with how I act and live in this world that God has put me in. Now, Jesus says about these meek that they're blessed, which if you've been around, it means you're happy You get the happiness delivered straight from heaven. It's the deep, real, true kind of happiness that you can't manufacture, you can't just force it, you can't muster it up from within. This is God's happiness, God's joy, God's satisfaction given to the people who meet these characteristics. They're blessed and the people who are experiencing this blessing are, Jesus says, meek. You say, why are they happy? Well, one of the reasons that they're happy, look at the promise to the meek, blessed are the meek. Why? For they shall inherit the earth. Now, if you're a first century Jew and you just heard Jesus say that, that the meek people are going to be the ones that are inheriting the earth, you probably would have been offended. In fact, I think probably many were. And you know that the Jews got offended and the offense heightened because eventually they wanted to kill that teacher, Jesus, and put him on a cross because they didn't like the message he was giving them. And I think their dislike for his message began probably around here when he started saying, it's not the powerful, it's not you who are noble, it's not you who have authority, it's not you Pharisees, it's not you who control the religious institutions, it's gonna be the meek who inherit the land. If you were a first century Jew, you're looking around, you see the Roman centurions walking around. There's the Roman rule. You would have recognized that you didn't have the authority as a Jewish believer or as a Jewish man or woman in those times. And here Jesus is saying, uh, here's how the land gets back to be yours. Here's how the earth is yours. It's meekness. Meekness. And these meek people are going to be the ones that inherit the earth. You might say, well, people already inherit the earth. Look around. There's people in every country of the world, in every corner of the globe, every crack and crevice, you find people. How do you say we don't own the world already, You inherit the earth already? We already own the earth, you might say, and things aren't what, always what they seem. Because if you actually go and look in, around the world, you would realize that this place is a dark place, and the world is a dark world, and there's not many people who are living in relationship to God and in relationship to the creation the way God wants them to. And there's this passage, the end of 1 John, 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, that says, we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This is what the Bible says. There is a world that God created, but all of it, if you travel as far east or west or north or south, every inch, it says here in 1 John, is lying in the power of the evil one. There's a sense in which Satan right now, during this stage in redemptive history, Satan is the one with a measure of authority. He's the one in Ephesians 2 described as a prince, the prince of the power of the air. In 2 Corinthians, Satan is described as a god, lowercase g, but he's described as the god of this world. It says, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, that the God of this world, that's referring to Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The God of this world has blinded people's minds so that they can't see Christ and they can't see his gospel. In a sense, this world is the domain of Satan. As 1 Peter says, that he's like a roaring lion that prowls the savannah looking for his prey, ready to devour. In Revelation, he's described as the deceiver of the whole world. The whole world has been duped. The whole world is in in a degree, to a degree, under his authority. You might even remember, if you're in Matthew chapter 5, looking at the Beatitudes, you might look at Matthew chapter 4, where Jesus is being tempted by Satan. And he tempts him, he tempts him three times. In this last temptation, in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is taken by the devil to a very high mountain, chapter 4, verse 8. It says that Satan showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. Satan is here taking Jesus. He's showing him the kingdoms. He's showing him the glory. And Satan says to Jesus, all these I will give you if you will fall down at my feet and worship me. In some sense, that means Satan had to have some degree of authority if he were the one to be able to hand it over to Jesus. At least that's what he's conveying here. He's saying, I can give it all to you. And of course, Jesus, our hero, resists the temptation. Satan, in a sense right now, he's the god of this world. He's the prince of the power of the air. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. He's the god of this world who's blinded the minds, blinded the eyes to understand the gospel of the glory of Christ. Now, this wasn't the intention in God's creation. God didn't create the world and hand it to Satan. You see, in Genesis chapter 1, the first thing that God says to Adam and Eve is, It's yours. Go, rule, subdue, have dominion. Verse 28, Genesis chapter 1. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. He goes, he's saying, hey, here's what I want you to do, Adam and Eve. I want you to have a bunch of kids. I want you to spread out across the whole globe so that my image bears. And so my glory is every corner of the globe. So this whole world reflects the greatness of who I am. That's the intent of creation. And that plan gets hijacked in Genesis chapter 3, right? As the serpent comes in. And he deceives these people. And he's thinking, maybe, maybe God doesn't really know what's best for you, the serpent begins to say. I've got an alternative plan. And although the entire world is given to Adam and Eve, they fall for Satan's trick. And in chapter 4 of Genesis, you get the first two people born into the fallen human race, and you get Cain, and you get Abel. And the first person born is a murderer. And from that point on, humanity is kind of divided in those two ways. you got Cain's and you got Abel's. Those who are going to follow the lie of the serpent and those who are going to follow the promises of God like Abel, you have the serpent's side and you have God's side. And if we're going to fast forward the thousands of years from that event to today, I'll tell you what, we have way more Cain's in the world than we have Abel's. Why? Because the whole world is under the power of the evil one because the God of this world, lowercase g, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so they can't understand the gospel. This world is like a car that's been hijacked. It's God's car. It was given to God's people, but Satan's got the keys right now, and he's driving it where he wants it to go. He's created up systems of deception, webs of lies and deceit, so that this world is a dark place dominated by anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-truth philosophy. The world, the earth, though given to mankind, is right now not under the rule and submission of mankind. It's under the rule and domination of the evil one. And Jesus comes along in Matthew chapter 5. He says, Blessed are the meek, for they, them, shall inherit the earth. I can almost imagine, if I can use my sanctified imagination here for a second, that as Jesus says this, these are the people who are going to inherit the earth. It's going to be theirs. It's going to be the meeks. That the demons, if they were around there listening, they would have said, no, this is ours. We stole it. We're going to hold on to it. And Jesus is right now hinting at his take back of planet earth. I'm going to get the keys and I'm going to bring them back. I'm going to get the title deed. It's going to be ours again. And I will give it back to the people for whom I created it. And it will be theirs. And they will spread through the whole world like I originally intended them. And they will give glory to God. And that will be exactly how these people live forever and ever and ever throughout the whole land giving glory to God. And they will be meek. The word they, blessed are the meek, for they, it's emphatic, it's clarifying, it's emphasizing that there's one category of people who will be there in the new heavens and the new earth, and it's meek people. It's people who are meek. It's not going to be a military Messiah who comes. It's not going to be anyone who takes the land by force. No one will be able to steal the earth back. It will be the meek. How do we define this? It's kind of difficult because... There's already definitions of meekness floating around in the world that are actually completely antagonistic to the definition that Jesus is going to give. Lacking in courage and confidence is what people think meekness is. The actual Greek word comes from a word that could mean mild or soft. It was sometimes used to describe a soft, soothing breeze. Last night we were sitting out in the patio, and this breeze started rolling in. It was a hot day, and this cool breeze came in. That could have been used as to describe meek, at least in the Greek. Uh, it was often used to describe animals that had been trained. You had a wild horse, maybe a stallion, a bronco buck, buck, bucking around, and and. You know, kicking off the people who try to ride it. It was unable to be tamed. And then if you actually got someone and you could tame that horse, if you could subdue that horse and it would listen to you and it would go where you wanted it to go, that would be called meek. That would be a word, a way that you would use that word. And so it didn't just mean that people are weak. It had to do with this idea of submitting to something, entrusting yourself to a higher authority. And he's saying these are the people who are going to inherit the whole world Uh, we read it in in our scripture reading turn back to psalm 37 because this is the psalm that jesus is quoting from when he is saying this jesus very familiar with his old testament quotes from psalm 37 as he begins his sermon on the mount in psalm 37 you get a verse 1 he begins describing or talking about, David is, is, is talking about how he has been surrounded by enemies, evildoers, wrongdoers. He, it keeps coming up in the psalm, and yet he's describing what he wants to do, what he's telling his soul to do in the middle of these difficulties. Verse 1, fret not because of evildoers, because of the envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. And he goes on and he's basically telling his soul how to respond to the difficulties of the world. Now look with me at some of the verbs that he's telling himself, some of the imperatives. Here's what I need to do as the evildoers surround me, as I'm getting darker and darker, as my world gets harder and harder. Look at this. Verse 1, don't worry, fret not. Verse 3, trust in the Lord. Verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord. Verse 5, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him. Verse 7, be still before the Lord. Wait patiently for Him. Verse 8, refrain from anger. Forsake wrath. In all this difficulty with evil do surrounding Him, He's saying, delight yourself in the Lord trust in the Lord commit yourself to the Lord hang on wait on the Lord it's all going to be okay trust Him refrain from anger don't get worried don't get anxious don't be impatient trust trust commit delight and then look at verse 9 for the evildoer shall be cut off but those who wait for the Lord shall what? inherit the land waiting on the Lord will enable you to inherit the land verse 10 just a little while the wicked will be no more Though you look carefully at his place, you will not be there. Here it is, verse 11. You, you'll notice this. It's kind of familiar. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. He's describing meekness. Well, what does it mean to be meek? It's to have a steady calm. If you can envision a storm raging in a lighthouse there on the solid rock, standing as the waves crash, as the rain falls, as lightning strikes, as the wind blow, they're standing firm, immovable, confident. That's the picture of a Christian here, unshaken. A calming steadiness is there. There's a delight in the Lord. There's a contentment in the Lord. I think another image that has helped me, you can think of a war horse. I'm not the first to come up with it. Think of a war horse. Okay, they got the shield and and it's been prepared. Now, this war horse is powerful. It's strong, but it's been trained, right? And if if it's going to be a good war horse, it's got to be ready to go wherever the rider wants it to go. And if it's a good war horse, it will be willing to go straight into battle, go straight into the enemies, if that's where the rider takes it. To be meek doesn't mean that you're weak. It means that you are in all that God has made you to be. You are prepared to do whatever the master tells you to do, to go wherever the master tells you to go, no matter what it costs you relationally. If the master calls, I go. It is submission to God. Meekness is submission to God and humility toward men. I entrust myself to God. And I will do whatever he asks me to do. Meekness. Sometimes in the New Testament translated, gentleness. You say, okay, if I actually choose to be meek, what might happen to me? If I can embrace the lifestyle of meekness, how, how will this play out? I've got to give you three ways this will play out in your life, and I'm going to tell you, you might say, well, I don't know if I want to be meek after this list. You might hear this list and go, "Ah, eh, meekness might not be my calling," because here's the first thing that will happen if we live a meek life. Is number one, if you want to take notes, here's here's what's going to happen: as you can write this down. Here's what happens to us: as we humble ourselves before God and as we humble ourselves before people, here's here's the first way this might affect our lives: is we will be people who give up our preferences. This is perfectly exemplified in, in the story of Abraham. In Abraham's story, there comes a point where he and his nephew Lot, in Genesis chapter 13, he and his nephew Lot are, are kind of getting to the point where they have a bunch of wealth, they have a bunch of cattle, they have a bunch of herdsmen, and they're starting to step on each other's toes. Now, they're, they're getting a little antsy with one another. Now, Abraham was the uncle, and Lot was the nephew, which means that Abraham had not only age, but he had the authority, he had the wealth to tell Lot what to do. And there comes a point where they're coming to this new land. They've kind of been sojourning together. And now it's getting to the point. It's a tipping point. They can't go on like this any longer because all of Lot's people are messing with all of Abraham's people. And there's tension increasing. And Abraham, as the elder in this relationship, he could have said, hey, buddy, hey, buddy, get out of here. You're messing with my people. You're messing with my cattle. And yet Abraham exemplifies meekness In Genesis chapter 13, verse 8, they come to this discussion, and Abraham says, Listen, let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we're kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, I'll go to the right. If you take the right hand, I'll go to the left. Abraham had the authority to kick Lot out. To say, I'm done with you. And instead, out of humble relationship with God, entrusting his future to God, and entrusting what land he would be given to God, he's going to give that all to God, and he's going to act with gentleness, with meekness, with Lot. He says, Lot, you choose. I'm not going to... Let my preferences dictate how this works out. I'm going to let you choose. I'm going to honor God and keep the peace. If you go left, I'll go right. If you go right, I'll go left. Meekness, listen guys, lays down preferences to serve others. We are willing and we're glad to lay down our preferences for others. We're not going to fight for our own preferences. Because if we're going to fight for our own preferences, guess what? We're always going to be fighting. Because God made us different, and that's good. And there's something about when a church comes together and we say, I am not going to be the one to enforce what I want on everyone else. I'm going to lay down my preferences. This is an example of meekness. We we, we give it up. We give it up. I'm going to entrust my plans to God. I'm going to entrust my wants to God. I'm going to entrust my desires to God. He is my delight. He is my trust. He is my hope. He is my treasure. And if I have him, I'm okay. And so you can take what you want. I'm okay. God will take care of me. Secondly, here's another thing that will happen to us. Not only will we be giving up our preferences, here's another thing. You might say again after this, I don't know if I want to be meek because these seem very negative. Here's the first, you'll give up your preferences. Here's the second, you might be defrauded. You might be defrauded in, in 1 Corinthians. I want you to turn there to see this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is dealing with that mess of a church that we call the Corinthian church. There's two other letters that were written to the Corinthians that are not even in our Bibles. Who knows what Paul had to say to them in those. We just know they were a mess. They were struggling with pride. They were divisive. They didn't know how to use their spiritual gifts. And in chapter 6, there's even something worse going on. This comes right off the heels of chapter 5, which is about dealing with sexual immorality in the church. This church was a mess. But what happens in in chapter 6 is this. Look at verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against one another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? Here's what he's saying. At some point in the church division had run so deep that the people couldn't get their differences reconciled. And what they began to do is they began to look outside the church and they began to go get lawyers. Saying, I can't fix this, but I want my rights. I want to make sure I get what I deserve out of all this. So I'm getting a lawyer. And they would go and they sue another person in the church. And that other person in the church might have gotten a lawyer too. And now you've got these two people who are not in the church arguing on behalf of these two people who are supposedly Christians united in the fellowship of the Spirit. And look at verse 7. Paul says, To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. He says, Listen, if you're getting people from the outside, And they're invited into this church dispute. You've already lost. Because they're now looking at the church and they're seeing division. They're seeing anger. They're seeing strife. And what does that say about our gospel? What does that say about the Holy Spirit? I'll tell you what. It doesn't say that the gospel is great. It doesn't say that Christ is satisfying. It doesn't say that the Spirit unites. It says actually the opposite of those things. And this church is divided. He's saying you are losing the battle already if you're getting people to come in and mediate for you. And then Paul says this. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded and here's his point here's his point wouldn't it be better for you to just be defrauded for you to be wronged for you to be taken advantage of so that you don't show off to the world the division that's going on in your church so you don't defame christ ruin the reputation of the church ruin the mission you're on wouldn't you rather just Just be defrauded. Just let that person take advantage of you because the moment we let the outside world in on this, we are showing off a broken gospel. That doesn't exalt Christ. He says, wouldn't you rather be defrauded? See, the meek says, this is an example of meekness. The meek says this, I I would rather be defrauded. I would rather be wronged. I would rather be taken advantage of than to do anything that brings my Savior's name into reproach. I would rather suffer wrong than drag the name of Christ through the mud. Take my money, take my rights, but let not Christ be dishonored. We'll be defrauded if we're meek. I've heard of church members suing one another. I've heard recently a story about a former church pastor suing the leaders of the church he served at because his severance package wasn't what he wanted it to be. What a shame. What a shame that the world sees the church and they're seeing that. We've already suffered defeat if that's what we're doing. So if we're meek, we treat one another and we say, hey, I'm not only going to lay down my preferences for you, but if something happens and there's tension, I will be the one to be defrauded. I'll be the one that suffers wrong. Hey, take advantage of me. But let Christ, in his name, and his glory, not get dragged through this. Maybe there's tension that you have in your life with another believer or family member. And maybe there's some meekness that needs to be brought to that scenario. That you could say, hey, I'll be the one who be, is defrauded here. I don't have to be right. I can lay down because I'm entrusting myself to God and my delight is in Him and I'm committing my way to Him and He'll take care of me and I don't need everything I'm fighting for. I'll be defrauded as long as Christ is lifted up and He's glorified. Let me be the one who's trampled on. I'm okay with that because God will take care of me. You say, well, if I'm meek, does that just mean I'll be run over and run over and run over again and I'm just going to be a doormat? Well, maybe, maybe, the difference is, is you're doing it willingly and gladly for the glory of Jesus Christ. And in that you will rejoice because God is seeing that and he knows. And this brings us to our third thing. What's going to happen? Well, we're going to be giving up our preferences. We probably will get defrauded at sometimes. Well, what will happen? Third, here's the third thing. You say, I don't know if I want to be meek. Here's a, here's a third reason you might not want to be meek. Number three, we'll suffer and we won't be able to retaliate. We'll suffer without retaliation. You can see this in Moses. Go to Numbers chapter 3. In cha- sorry, not Numbers chapter 3, Numbers chapter 12. Because in verse 3, there's one of those statements about Moses that clues us in that he is a meek man. Verse 3 says, Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. Well, why would he say that? Well, look at the previous two verses. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. Miriam and Aaron... Two of Moses' closest friends. Moses had led the Israelites out of Egypt. He was their leader. He had been aiming to show them what it is to be a good leader. He's been doing everything he can to lead them under God's authority. And now two of his closest friends start speaking against him. I can't imagine the pain. You can gloss over it so quickly because it's not really he doesn't really elaborate on it, but Miriam and Aaron speak against Moses. Look at that. Because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. Verse two, and they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Miriam and Aaron. Are you the only one, Moses, that God speaks through? Isn't someone else? Aren't we, aren't other people able to speak on behalf of God? Has he not, he says, has he not spoken through us also? Don't we have a right to to speak on behalf of God? You're not the only leader, Moses. You can listen to us too. And they're subtly undermining the leadership of Moses. And look at what it says next. I love this. And the Lord heard it. The Lord heard this. In verse 3, it says that statement, Moses is very meek. Well, well, what does meekness have to do with what went before and what when comes next? Look at verse 4. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and to Miriam, it's like the Lord sees, he hears it, all right, you guys are accusing Moses? You're accusing my servant Moses, the one I used to bring you out of Egypt. You're accusing him? I got something to say to you three. And he gathers them like a little team huddle. And God said, I got a message for you guys. Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And they come out, in verse 5. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud, and he stood at the entrance of the tent, and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward, and he said, listen to this, verse 6. Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He's faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly, not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you afraid to speak against my servant Moses? I love it. God comes to defend and protect the leader Moses. Now I want you to notice something. Did Moses defend Moses? Did Moses defend himself? Did Moses rise up to Miriam and say, hey, yeah, I am the guy. Did he say that to Aaron? No, I'm the one that God's beacon through. There's no hint in this text that he rises up to defend himself. Yet God steps in to defend and vindicate his leadership. See, if we are meek, we will be willing to suffer without retaliation like Moses. And we will say, God, you will vindicate me. You will vindicate me either in this life or in the next, but you will vindicate me and it's not for me. It's not for me to rise up and defend my ego or my reputation. It's not me for, to, for me to be defensive. That's meekness. They're saying, I trust you, Lord. I'm entrusting myself to you, Lord. I'm delighting in you, Lord. You will vindicate me. I'm not going to start a fight now between us and make sure that we're all on the same page. I'm not going to start a fight to defend my position of authority. He says, God will take care of me. And so sometimes we'll suffer and we won't be the ones to retaliate. But you know who the most meek of all people were? It's Jesus. I want you to see this in Matthew 27. Matthew 27. Previously he had said that, Jesus, he said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm meek. And lowly of heart, he is the perfect example of meekness, perfectly submitting himself to the Father as he lived among men. But I want you to see this, and I want it to fill your hearts with worship to our Savior, to stand in awe of him, in his meekness demonstrated. 27, verse 11, Jesus stood before the governor. He's about to go to the cross, guys. This is the moment... That we Christians love to hear about it's excruciating to read about and yet it's where our glory is found because we know that on the cross is where our sins were paid for in full this is where he's going Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him are you the king of the Jews and Jesus said you have said so now note how many times he speaks from here until the end of the chapter and when he was accused By the chief priests and the elders what he do he gave no answer and then Pilate said to him do you not hear how many things they testify against you aren't you gonna say something Jesus are you gonna step up and defend yourself but he gave him no answer not even to a single charge so that the governor was greatly amazed skip over to verse 27 he could have defended himself he was being accused he could have stepped in and defended himself verse 27 the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him this isn't to crown him as royally this is to mock him they put a robe on him and they twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on his head this would appear straight through his scalp into his skull and they put a reed in his hand a mock scepter he's a fool's king and they're kneeling before him and they're mocking him saying "Hail, king of the jews and they spit on him and he took the reed and they struck him on the head And the way that verb is, is they were doing it again and again, and they're mocking Him, and they're cursing Him, and they're accusing Him, and they're making Him a fool, and He's not doing anything. Why? He's going to the cross to die for you. He's going to the cross to die for me. He's going to pay for my sins. In verse 31, and when they had mocked Him, they stripped Him of the robe, and they put His own clothes back on Him, and they led Him away to crucify could have at any moment called down a legion of angels. At any moment, he could have called it all off. But he's going silent before his accusers. Verse 32, And they went out, and they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled him to carry his cross. And when they came to the place called Golgotha, the place means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. When he tasted it, he would not drink it. They say that the wine mixed with gall was something that would function like a painkiller. It would numb the senses so that going to the cross would actually make it easier to bear. He wouldn't be able to f- feel as much, but it also numbed the senses. He wouldn't be able to think as well. And Jesus, tasting it, identifies what it is and spits it out. Why? I think it's because he still had ministry to do. Because as he went to that cross, he was going out of love. He still needed to talk to that robber next to him and tell him he could be with him in paradise. He still needed to speak to John and Mary and tell John to take care of Mary. He's thinking of others, even as he's going to the cross. He says, I'm not going to numb my wits. I'm not going to numb my senses. I need to be fully there as I die. I need to feel it all because I need to be ready to minister to the people even around me, even to the deepest possible pain. So he doesn't drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots like it's a game. Verse 36, And they sat down and they kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put a charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. He was any moment he could have claimed that crown he was king of the Jews but he's not saying anything and then the robbers were crucified on either side of him one on the right and one on the left and those who passed by derided him wagging their heads and saying you who would destroy the temple and rebuild in three days save yourself if you are the son of God he was come down from that cross he could have but he's not because he's meek and he's going to that cross to die for sinners he's going to that cross to suffer for them he's fully and completely submitted to the father and trusted himself to the father you say, how do you how do you do this Jesus I mean what a man to admire our Savior let's admire him how did he do this well Peter said it was because he continued listen entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He entrusted himself to the Father. He said, I will do good. I will love my people. I will teach the truth. I will do all I can to the people and come what may, I will entrust myself to the Father. I'm entrusting my life to him. If I suffer, I'm entrusting my suffering to him. I'm entrusting it all to him. And he will take care of it. And if justice needs to be meted out, I'm not going to do it. He was reviled and he did not revile in return. He was suffering and he did not threaten. Why? He entrusted himself to the Father. And in, in your own life, this is a model for us, there may be something that you're suffering with or accused of. And you're tempted to rise up and defend yourself. Maybe you want to get back at that person, your spouse or your kids or a coworker. And yet Jesus is the model here. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Why? To do good for as many people as he went there and died for them. A humble submission to the Father while doing good to men. This is what meekness is. You say, hang on a second. All right, how? Explain to me how the meek will inherit the earth. Because they're always giving up their preferences. They're always being defrauded. And when opposition comes, they're silent against their accuser and they don't retaliate. How is that going to advance anywhere? You say a doormat isn't a good mode of transportation. We're not going to advance anywhere if we're all doormats laying ourselves down. But listen, this this is how God has decided to advance the cause of the church. Because there are three blessings now, and I'm going to rip through them one by one. Three blessings. If we live this way, if we are meek, if we are poor in spirit, and it's so, so part of the conviction of our self-evaluation that we view everyone else as more significant than ourselves, and we're truly meek, there will be blessings that come out of this. Number one, we're going to enjoy a united church blessed is the church where no one's fighting for their preferences defending their egos all trying to get what's theirs all trying to fight for their own rights and yet we lay those things down in love for one another meekness is the foundation for unity humility is the foundation of unity in philippians chapter 2 this is so clear he's saying i want you to strive forward with one mind i want you to strive forward with one heart in unity i want you to strive and then you say well how do i do that paul and he goes into chapter 2 verse 4 and he says don't count anyone is more significant or count yourself is less significant than everyone else Count yourself as the least significant in the room. You walk into church and you say, everyone here is more significant than I am. And I'm going to do everything I can to bless the people around me. I'm going to lay down my preferences. I'm going to do whatever I can. I will even suffer if I can do good for other people. I won't defend myself. But I'll rise up. And I'll help and I'll love and I'll serve and I'll do good as much as I can. This is the foundation of a church that's growing in unity. Meek people can look around in the room and they can say, I am privileged that such people would be around me. Proud people can look around the room and evaluate whether they wanna be associated with the people who are in the room. Proud people are not able to admire the various ways God has arranged his church. But meek people, they can look around and they say, I'm poor, I'm needy, and God has so in his grace given me these people what a blessing. What a privilege. I could be a part of this congregation. There's unity. And love. When we're meek, we view ourselves lowly and we view others highly and we recognize we need each other. So the meek enjoy the blessing of a united church. Here's a second way the meek are blessed. The meek experience an advancing gospel. You, you understand, if, if we want to see this community reached, and we do, amen, amen, we want to see neighbors brought to Christ. We want to see people discipled and trained up. We want to see leaders sent out to bless the community and the world and the nations. Well, how do we do it? I think many churches think they do it the same way the world does it. The world has concerts and theaters that get packed out. Why don't we become like one of those? We need big budgets. We need A-list celebrities. We need those kind of things. We need some more fame. We need some more popularity. And, and yet, the Christian knows that In actuality it's the meek who advance if we need something big if we need some production if we need a budget and that's the only way that the church advances that's the only way that Christians are successful I tell you Paul at the end of his life abandoned and in a prison cell is not a very good picture of success is he and all the martyrs throughout church history and even the martyrs today are not exactly heroes if it's all about being big, if it's all about production, if it's all about something like that, the church doesn't advance, the gospel doesn't advance on the shoulders of bulldozers who are plowing their way forward in the ways of the world, it advances on the soft and gentle breeze of the meek. The meek. It's not armies, it's not crusades. Jesus compared the kingdom to a mustard seed. It starts small, it looks irrelevant, but by the end, or the final unveiling, it's gigantic. See, this is, this is the beauty of the church. You might look around and say, well, what's going on here? What, what kind of shindig is this? <laughs> we gather together on a Sunday morning and we have, we're small in number and this is insignificant, isn't it? And the world will certainly look in here and they say, this is insignificant. There's nothing significant going on because look how, look how the building is and look at the people here and, and they might get to know us and they say, yeah, there's something insignificant happening there. This is very insignificant. And we will say, ah, but you can't see. Because if you had eyes of faith, you'd see that the mustard seed principle is here. And that something that looks irrelevant and something that looks insignificant will one day be unveiled to be extremely significant. And the church of Jesus Christ will last throughout all generations into all eternity, and that will be infinitely significant. We are part of something very significant and yet very meek. Very meek. If we want the ministry to move forward, it carries... Forward on the shoulders of the meek. You say, I want to evangelize, I want to tell people about the gospel, how do I do it? First Peter three fifteen. But in your hearts we honor the Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Be ready to share about your hope, yet do it with meekness, he says. You lead people to Christ with meekness. How do you disciple people who once they come to Christ? You want to lead them and walk with them and, and show them more and more what it means to walk with Jesus. Well, Paul said in 2 Corinthians that he entreats them with the meekness and gentleness of Christ. You lead people to Christ in meekness. You walk with people with Christ, helping them follow Jesus in meekness. You say, well, what about someone straying? Maybe when they're straying, you've got to get out that backhand, right, and give them a little slap. That might help them come back to church. Paul would say in Galatians 6.1, Brothers, if anyone's caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of meekness. You say, what about the opponents? The people who are in opposition to what we're doing. How should we treat them? Certainly those people, we got to be a little more fierce. And Paul would say in 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with, guess what? Meekness. In meekness, we lead people to Jesus. In meekness we walk with people as they follow Jesus. In meekness we help people when they stray to come back to Jesus. In meekness we correct opponents who are opposing Jesus. It's all under submission to God and love toward man with gentleness. Because really, you want to do ministry here? We all are called to it. The church is called to it. I want to be useful, right? I think that's the heart cry of every believer here. You say, I want to be useful. I want to be helpful well here's the the thing it all begins with us realizing we can't do anything we're called to do unless God does it so we act as if it's not in our hands it's in God's hands we we act in meekness the last blessing that the meek enjoy of course is what Jesus said blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth church brothers and sisters let's be encouraged it's all going to be ours in due time, it's all ours. And if there's fear or worry or anxiety or resentment, a desire to retaliate in your life, let this be a comfort that says, No, it's all going to be yours. You don't need to fight that battle now. That'll be taken care of and trust yourself to God. Be encouraged. The church will advance on the shoulders of the meek, and we will humbly entrust ourselves to God, and we will say, God, do your will. We have to ask ourselves are we meek? Individually, are you meek? Do you prefer others? Are you willing to be defrauded? Are you willing even to suffer without retaliating? Maybe, do you need to entrust yourself to God for the first time? Maybe you've never entrusted yourself to God fully and completely. We know that God sent his son Jesus Christ to take take sinners like us who don't deserve the world. We don't deserve salvation. We don't deserve forgiveness. And Jesus went to that cross and suffered before his accusers without retaliating. He died there. Why? So all the sins of us who would believe would be put on him. And he would bear the penalty. And he would then pay in full for it. And he would rise again and extend salvation to everyone who repents and believes. In meekness we come to Jesus and if you haven't this morning, come to Jesus in meekness and trust him. And it's these are the ones who inherit the world. 1 Corinthians three. It's all yours, he says. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or present or future, all are yours. Look at that mountain outside, it's yours. Look at the flowers, they're ours. They're crafted by God, given to his church. We are here to enjoy his creation. Let's understand, the kingdom is ours in escrow. We're waiting for the final consummation of our blessed world, redeemed in full, with the gathered elect from every tongue, tribe, and nation. We're waiting that day. Until then, we don't fight for ourselves. We don't defend our names. We don't defend our egos. We humbly entrust ourselves to God as we live out in harmony with one another. We are those who are heirs with Christ, who Paul said, we have nothing but possess everything. Let's finish with this. Imagine this. Imagine a father at the table with all his children, and imagine there's many children gathered at the table, and he says, all this is here for you, all this food is here for you if you trust me. I will give it to you at the appropriate time. And all the kids come and they're sitting around the table, but they're hungry. And so kids are doing what kids do. They're reaching for the food here and they're fighting over this thing and they want to be first to grab the food. And many of them are, are scrambling and, and then they're looking around and they're complaining. Hey, he has more than me. Hey, she has more than I do. And they're, they're, they're complaining and they're kind of starting to fight and they, they wish they had more. And, but imagine there's some other children sitting at the table and they're just quietly looking at their father. And they look around at the other people and it seems they don't have nearly as much as them. But they're not going to reach. They're not going to grab. They're not going to scramble. They're just looking around. And every once in a while, the father gives them a portion of the food, which is enough to satisfy a little bit of their hunger, but it's not fully satisfied. And they're just waiting. Your Father, you'd said we'd be able to get this. They're just waiting on their Father. And after a time of the the kids who are full, they've been fighting and they finally got everything they want, the father says, all right, those of you who didn't wait on me to feed you, you're dismissed. But now those who waited for me to divvy out the right portion at the right time, and you looked to me and you trusted me and you took whatever came, and even though it looked like you weren't getting anything in this dinner, now you who waited on me, trust me, let's clear the table, I have a feast coming. A never ending feast. Free refills. Go back and get as much as you want. It's all yours. And night after night, you come back, this feast will be here. Eat till you're full. Eat till you want no more. Eat till you can have no more. It's all yours. That's the Christian. You look around and it might seem like people got way more than you do. But we're looking to our Father. We're saying, Lord, you'll give me what I need when I need it. But I am waiting that day that you give me everything. And my hope in that promise colors every day and every moment. Everything becomes a little more sweeter as I know I'm anticipating the fullness of God's gift of salvation to me to come. So you fight in this world, for this world, and for the things of this world now, you'll lose it all in the end. Defend your honor now, you'll have none in the end. Or as Jesus said, find your life in this world, lose it. So are you meek? Are you entrusting yourself to God? Looking to Him patiently like a child who trusts His Father provision? If so, take heart. It's all yours. It's all yours in his timing, but it's all yours. Let's pray.